0: up to a really exciting part where they were behind fenced reserves that were fox free in four locations. They were on three islands. And the recovery team was able to make the exciting announcement that they were no longer extinct in the wild, and they could be moved back to endangered, uh, which was an Australian first and so exciting.
1: Welcome to the Possibilists. The is now a partnership between Pelicanus and Reverse the Red. In this series, we will highlight the scientists, organizations, institutions, and communities focused on reversing the trend of biodiversity loss and recovering species on the IUCN Red List. We are so excited to announce this partnership and to get these amazing success stories out to the world, spreading optimism for the conservation of biodiversity. For this episode as part of Reverse the Red's Year of Action, the theme for August and September is Mammals. So we talked with part of the Eastern Barred Bandicoot recovery team from Australia. We wanted to learn everything there is to know about the amazing work they have done and still do to recover the Eastern Barred Bandicoot populations in Australia. Enjoy our conversation with the team. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We're very excited to talk about bandicoots. Duncan, do you mind uh, introducing yourself first and telling us who you are, what you do?
2: Sure, so I'm uh, Dr. Duncan Sutherland. I work for the Phillip Island Nature Parks. I'm also chair of the Eastern Barred Bandicoot recovery team. And I'm uh, a scientist working on a whole range of things from pest species, but definitely in threatened species and how we might recover them in uh, the region of Victoria and in Australia that we're we're working in.
1: Awesome. Marissa, your turn.
0: Hi, I'm Dr. Marissa Parrott. I'm the reproductive biologist at Zoos Victoria. I'm a member of the Eastern Barred Bandicoot recovery team and have been privileged to work with the species for about 16 years now. And I also coordinate and lead the Eastern Barred Bandicoot captive breeding program.
1: All right, Amy, you're up.
3: Yeah, so I'm... Dr. Amy Kitsia, so I'm a threatened species biologist at Zoos Victoria. I've been working with Eastern bird bandicoots for 18 years. So I actually started off working with them by doing my PhD on them. And, um, it's not my only species that I work with, but it's been the, um, uh, the species that I've worked with the most whilst joining the zoo. Um,
1: I think I want to start with the species cause. I kind of mentioned to you guys before this, but I don't really know anything about the species. I know it's super cute. The only thing I actually know about it is I used to play the video game Crash Bandicoot (laughs) as a kid. And when someone we we, we talked about doing this, I was like, oh, I know what Bandicoots are. I was like, I have no idea what Bandicoots are. Um, So uh, whoever wants to, can can you please uh, just tell us a little bit about the species? Where does it live? What does it eat? Some interesting facts about it, anything. Sure, I can jump in. I'm um, wants to see. I've got another nature, and you
2: Amy, go for it.
3: <laughs> they are super cute. They are way around a kilo, a little bit less than a kilo, so about this size. Um, they've got this amazing pointy nose. Um, they've got three to four stripes, white stripes on their bum, which make them easily camouflaged in the grassland habitat. So they are nocturnal, they they will nest in more sheltered areas, the areas with shrubs and trees during the day and then they'll come out at night. They're digging mammals, so they actually have a really important role in um, the ecosystem, so they're turning over that soil constantly. Um, and And they're doing that because they're foraging, so for things like worms, beetle grubs, but they will eat anything here. We've had people witness them jump into the, you know, a metre high into the air to catch them off. Um, So they're pretty amazing and skilled jumpers. Um, Duncan and I have been involved in some research where we found that one Bendigoot in one night can turn over 13 kilos of soil. Which is phenomenal when, when you think about, you know, the size of them and when you multiply that by, you know, your population size, this is major excavation that's happening, um, every single night. Um, so really, really important species to have, um, in the environment.
2: I think the, the digging is a really a really critical part of what these bandicoots are doing, these little small digging marsupials that uh, uh, were across the landscape in uh, most of Australia, in fact. And these guys, they're actually digging about 500 little digs per night, each individual. So these little tiny little holes that they're creating, but it has such an important role in the soil health and condition. It's just extraordinary. So they're reducing compaction. They're allowing water to penetrate through. They're fundamentally changing the the health and condition of soils. And so the soils we have in Australia now are not the same as they used to be uh, because we've lost a lot of these little digging mammals. And Marissa's going to cover off on some of the the cool uh, biology (laughs) and reproductive side of things, I'm sure.
0: Thanks, Duncan. I would love to. As a reproductive biologist, one of the things I love about bandicoots the most is their amazing reproduction. As Amy said, they are unbelievably cute and adorable. They're very tough. As Duncan said, they're extremely important in their ecosystem but I think they're one of the most impressive animals in the world for their reproduction. They have one of the shortest known pregnancies of any mammals. They're pregnant for just 12 and a half days. They give birth to babies that are about the size of a grain of rice. They're absolutely tiny and bandicoots are marsupials. So the babies attach to their mother's teats in the pouch and they start to grow. Those babies are weaned at just over two months old which is extremely quick, so they're able to take care of themselves after two months. And in fact, they can breed themselves at just three months old for females and five months old for males. Now the mothers are extremely impressive as well because they have the babies in their pouch for the two months, but about a week before the babies wean, the mothers will mate again. And so as the first litter weans, that second litter is born. And the females are able to have up to five litters per year when the conditions are really good and supportive for them. They do this by having a rolling reproductive strategy so within the mother's pouch there are eight teats. She generally has two to three young per litter and so they grow on their teats and then when the next litter is born they attach to the smaller unused teats and then as they grow those larger teats start to regress and they're ready for the next litter. And so they're constantly able to be reproductively active, to have young in their pouch, young at foot to teach them how to forage and how to hunt. And so they're a truly remarkable species in terms of their reproduction and how quickly they can grow their population as well.
1: That's insane. You only ever hear of those kinds of reproduction strategies in invasive species, I think. That's insane.
4: Yeah,
2: it's probably a a real reaction to the, the dynamic environments that we experience here in Australia. So when conditions are good, they've got to take advantage of it, but conditions can be bad and they need to be able to survive through those lean periods too. But as Marissa's just said, they can respond really fast. They've clearly adapted to be able to do that.
0: And it means that when you think about that really quick reproduction and how impressive they are, we should have bandicoots everywhere. And so it always shocks people when as a recovery team, we say that the species, the Eastern barred bandicoot used to be extinct in the wild on mainland Australia, we should have them everywhere. And for a long time, they just weren't.
1: So I guess that brings up the next question of, uh, what is their, their natural home range? Is it all over the mainland or is it in a certain habitats and then, you know, the coastal where, where could you find them hundred, two hundred hundred, 200 years ago?
3: So they're a grassy woodland species, so they used to occupy an area of Victoria known as the Basalt Plains, which um, is from Melbourne um, out to the South Australia border. Uh, they're also in Tasmania, that's a different subspecies, um, so they they need those open areas for foraging and those more denser areas for, for nesting um but the major threat and the reason that they became extinct in the wild is because of foxes uh once when the foxes were introduced um one fox in an area of bandicoots is just one too many they just cannot cope with that any level of fox predation and so this is an introduced predator and bandicoots are the, their only predator really was an um, aerial predator so they're prey so they have this freeze uh, tactic to avoid predation from birds of prey, which doesn't work with the fox. So they're kind of easy pickings. Um, so we saw a widespread decline um, around European settlement and and the population declined and contracted to a place called Hamilton in Western Victoria. So that was a stronghold. That was the last place we could find them in the wild and they dwindled and continued to decline throughout the 70s and by The late 80s, the recovery team was formed and the first action was to collect as many fenditives as they could from the wild to start a a capture breeding program and start to release them into fenced areas where they could be protected from fox predation.
2: Clearly, this is a species that's been able to persist and and thrive for for millennia, but the introduction of these invasive predators into the Australian environment has just fundamentally changed what species like this can actually cope with. Um, it's, it's changed the, the biota, the, the, the species that persist uh, just quite dramatically.
1: I think being ignorant Americans, when we think of Australia, we think of animals that can kill you and invasive species that are usually come from either the US or Europe. Um, and so are, are these the, the typical uh, English red fox that are coming through?
3: They sure are. And yeah. And being English, I, I love red foxes, just um, not in Australia.
1: <laughs> That's it's so interesting because like usually when we talk to people about their the, the species they work on and the, the decline, it's usually a, a variety of different things. And it seems as if this is the one major issue. So have there been um, efforts throughout Australia to uh uh, eradicate the, the red fox or is it just kind of like so widespread that it's just, it's uh, almost an impossible program?
2: Well, it pretty much is an impossible program with the technology that we have available to us now, or the techniques that that are, are available. They're, they're spread across most of mainland Australia, just not in the, the northern portion of the continent. And they're not in Tasmania, the island state, uh, the bottom of Australia but otherwise they're across that whole Southern Central area uh, and anything that is within, <laughs> within their range is, is vulnerable. But it is just very true that the Eastern Barred Bandicoot is just so fundamentally susceptible to red fox predation, uh, more so than most other species that are, are extant that uh, are still around. Uh, they're just incredibly susceptible and, and it's not the only issue that they face but it is certainly um, the strongest uh, threat uh, that they do face.
0: Yes, there are a number of threats to them. As Amy mentioned, habitat destruction is a large one for things like agriculture and housing. And so 99.9% of their grassland homes have been destroyed and it is Victoria's most endangered ecosystem, those volcanic grassland plains. And so there are a number of other species Uh, like Victorian grassland earless dragons and beautiful little carnivorous marsupials like fat-tailed dunnarts, which are also affected by this. Cats are also a major problem for a number of species, not only for predation, but also they carry a disease, toxoplasmosis, which can affect animals like marsupials quite strongly. But for the bandicoots, foxes really are the major issue. They just can't survive with them and foxes are beautiful, adaptable, intelligent, and they use a different form of hunting that the bandicoots just don't understand. And that's why they need to be housed in areas that are maintained fox-free, where they can survive and thrive.
3: One great thing about the bandicoots though, which has led to um, their reclassification is that they are incredibly adaptable to different habitats. so, you know, even though we've had this widespread habitat destruction in Victoria and of their native grasslands, um, they can actually survive and live across farmland um, as long as there's no foxes there. So you take out the fox from the equation and the benefits can adapt to whatever or most situations that they face. Um, even, you know, the um, high reproductive output so means that they can overcome the... Impacts from toxoplasmosis. So, you know, they can continue to breed, and that's not going to topple, or we've not seen it topple the populations yet at some sites. Um, so, yeah, they are incredibly adaptable, and, and so that's kind of um, helped. And even with their diet, they'll eat pretty much anything they come across, which makes it easier for us when we're looking at reintroducing them. They don't have specialized diets, um, which is one less challenge that we need to overcome.
1: That was going to be one of my next questions is what they eat, but it sounds like they have Taylor's feeding strategy is whatever comes in front of him, he'll put in his mouth and try to eat it.
2: Yeah, pretty much, and we've actually done a bit of work trying to understand their diet. So lots of grubs and worms and things, as Amy was mentioning earlier, as they're sort of foraging either under the surface of the soil or on the on the surface. It might be spiders and and the like, and even uh, bulbs of of, of uh, plant bulbs and things like that. But we've uh, noticed that in areas where They've been introduced to the coastal areas. We've seen crabs in their diet, which hadn't been seen before. So they'll happily munch on those. And they're, they're quite partial to some of the fungi, particularly the, um, the truffles that are underground. Now, a lot of marsupials forage for those as a specialty in, in Australia. It's a key part of our ecosystem here. Uh, So they've got a pretty expensive little uh, diet as well that they can find much better than we can using their, their highly sensitive noses. Uh, They're they're pretty good.
1: they sound like they're not picky, but they like, they have uh, expensive taste every once in a while.
2: That's right. Between truffles and crabs, you're not doing too badly. Right,
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. So tell me about the program, because as I believe it was Amy that said that they were extinct in the wild on the mainland and now they've recovered to endangered. So that's a plus two, right? On the reverse, on the the red list. So that's as good as it gets.
2: Well, it's been a long process, as you said. So it's been more than 25 years in the making. And the early years of it, um, as uh, Marissa was saying early on, we've had this population brought into captivity and then behind fenced areas, these fenced reserves. And it was through a series of reintroductions of Eastern Barred Bandicoos to various reserves that it was made pretty obvious that if foxes were able to get into those reserves, there were any incursions, then the populations disappeared. The fox predation was just fundamental to the success of any of these reintroduction t- attempts. And so once that became evident to the recovery team, it was clear what this species really needs is fox-free habitat, somewhere that they can thrive. And so the recovery team made the bold step of going, okay, uh, we've got fenced reserves that provides us a bit of habitat to play with, but that's really not enough to bring a species back from the brink. What we need is broader, larger areas of fox-free habitat and the bold move was to look beyond their historic range and say, well, we've got some islands that are either fox-free or just about to become fox-free because islands, we have the the option of either keeping foxes at bay or eradicating them from those islands as well. And they're much larger, potentially. You've got this wonderful water barrier that keeps foxes um, at arm's length where the Eastern Barred Bandicoots could well thrive but it does create a whole lot of um, other issues Uh, just in terms of, you know, this is new habitat. They haven't been there before. Are they gonna succeed in, in establishing in a new area? and what kind of influence might they have on that, that area. So they, these are things that we needed to be sure that they're not gonna become a, an issue for the species that do live on on islands outside their, their former range. So it's been a, a bold step to take uh, the move to introducing the Eastern Bard Bandicoot to large islands. And it hasn't just been a, a plain sailing, it, it also has involved some undertaking some trials and and seeing whether we can establish them, but also can we establish them in an island context where people live? We're going from a scenario where they're behind the fenced uh, reserve or behind a fence in a reserve to actually being potentially in people's backyards. And that involves a much greater level of engagement and needs the support from the community. And so that's been a major undertaking for the team.
1: So this is pretty complex program because you have the you need the land you need the actual animals you need to increase the number of animals but then also you need the social aspect that you want people to be okay with them digging in their backyard. So I, I don't even uh, that sounds so complex and how to bring that all together. So I guess uh, the next thing we could talk about just to kind of get it all is the uh, captive breeding. Marissa, you talked about the unique breeding style strategy of the the bandicoots or the uh, Eastern barred bandicoot. How, how do you go about captively breeding them? That doesn't make any sense.
0: The focus for us in the recovery team at Zeus Victoria was always having bandicoots safe back out in the wild where they belonged, but that did mean we needed to have a 33 year long captive breeding and conservation program. So the program started in 1989 with the collection of the last wild bandicoots that were under threats by foxes and they were taken to a fence reserve Woodlands Historic Park to try and breed them in a group but it was very difficult to manage them and to breed them that way. They're not particularly social animals, they will fight, they will breed very quickly and so to manage genetics and behaviour In 1991, the program came to Zoos Victoria, here at Melbourne Zoo, where I'm calling in from today. And it started with just 23 bandicoots. So it was a very small number and under a lot of pressure. And so we had a lot of researchers through the Eastern Barred Bandicoot Recovery Team and with our scientists and our keepers to start this program to provide insurance against extinction to provide animals for reintroduction back to wild type sites and islands and to undertake research as well. So we looked into everything from diet and husbandry of the species, maintaining natural behaviors, things like mate choice and breeding success to make sure we had the best offspring. Genetics was a very big focus for all of us as well to maintain genetics and work as a meta population. So all of the populations were joined we had investigations with our veterinary teams into things like toxoplasmosis which they could catch from cats and even research into how do you put a radio transmitter on a bandicoot to track them because we track all of the animals after reintroduction but bandicoots are shaped like a cone and they don't have a neck and they can't wear a collar so it was really working through how best to track these animals and In the end, it was via a tiny little transmitter attached to their little white tails with veterinary tape that would eventually just fall off by itself. And so there was a big focus on so many different aspects of bandicoot biology and breeding and conservation. Over the 33 year program, we produced and raised over 1,200 bandicoots uh, at Zoos Victoria and with our partners at places like Serendip Sanctuary and a number of other zoos as well who joined us. We released over 740 of those bandicoots to fenced locations, islands and wild type sites. And we provided that insurance against extinction. So if sites failed or things went wrong in the field, uh, we'd be able to always have that backup of having bandicoots safe in the program so we could try something else and adaptively manage and learn across time. So when the breeding program first started, it was a numbers game. We bred as quickly as possible and as many as possible to get them back out into wild areas and try and minimise any loss of genetic diversity. And over time, that focus really turned into genetics. And so we wanted to make sure that we had as broad a genetic base as possible and we minimised any loss. And we maintain natural behaviors too so we actually developed a new style of program where animals were constantly coming in from Fenston Island locations breeding a maximum of twice in the captive program and then all of the offspring and the adults were released back out to wild type sites and that way we had a rolling system to manage the genetics and continue that insurance program and producing young for releases and new founders. And so it was working with people like Duncan at Phillip Island Nature Parks, with Conservation Volunteers Australia at Woodlands, at Odonata at Mount Rothwell, and with Richard Hill and the Department of Environment at Hamilton um, and Parks Victoria. There were so many partners um, who had to all work together to make this all work where we were joining these different populations breeding and being able to then start new populations and so it was a really exciting program to lead and a huge amount of work it also meant that we could raise awareness for the bandicoots by having them on display in nocturnal houses because they're shy and they're cryptic and they're small and they're nocturnal and people often don't get to see them but when they do see them they absolutely fall in love with them so awareness raising is another big part of what we do as well So over that 33 years, we learned a huge amount. We released animals. And then as mentioned earlier, we got to a really exciting part where they were behind fenced reserves that were fox free in four locations. They were on three islands and the recovery team was able to make the exciting announcement that they were no longer extinct in the wild and they could be moved back to endangered, uh, which was an Australian first and so exciting. And because of that, it also meant that we were able to close down our 33-year captive breeding program because we were no longer needed. And to the best of our knowledge, for a species listed as extinct in the wild, to have a captive program closed down because it was successful and we were no longer needed, that's a world first. And so it's something that we're all extremely proud of. And it's been a cast of thousands of members of the Eastern Bard Bandicoot Recovery Team of volunteers, of staff, and all of us, Amy, Duncan and I, along with other partners, were together for the very last ever release of Bandicoots back to Woodlands Historic Park in late 2021. And it was a real full circle moment where the breeding program started there. The last Bandicoots were released there and we could all raise a toast and have some champagne, toast the Bandicoots and a successful program. It was an an absolute highlight of our careers and also of our lives.
1: I was going to say I feel like that's uh we Taylor and I joked that the the whole point of our job is to get ourselves out of a job so we don't have to keep doing these kinds of things um and you guys did it. <laughs> that's it. Like that's like I like, when you said that I was like I don't think I've ever heard of a species that have has done that before and like you're right that that's it. So that's that's incredible. Um
2: It's a nice one to chalk up that's true
1: and it really
0: shows that when you have the right focus the right investment the right partnerships everyone working together that even when a species is extinct in the wild and down to the last 23 individuals you can actually fight extinction and bring them back so i think it's a story of hope for everyone but it also shows that conservation is a marathon not a sprint we need to have these long-term programs, but when we can celebrate the success and see them on Phillip Island and French Island running free, it makes it all worthwhile.
1: Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's like, it's a, it's a beacon of hope, but also as a, an example of partnerships, like you said, that that Taylor likes to put in some of his episodes, his news episodes, that uh, conservation can work and, you know, As we're talking about partnerships, I I really like that this is, you guys are part of the Reverse the Red partnership as well, because you can be kind of that example of, you can do this. This is something that can be done with, you know, potentially 33 years and thousands of people, and I don't know how many millions of dollars, (laughs) but can you talk about how um, the recovery team has been involved with the Reverse the Red and, and how... You guys are able to contribute and and take from other programs and all that. I know the work is nowhere near done. (laughs) I
0: think this is such a wonderful program that really shows the values of Reverse the Red. It's optimistic, it's evidence based, and it's collaborative with so many partners, with so many communities, as Duncan was talking about and as Amy was talking about. It really has those same values. But the focus of Zoos Victoria and the Eastern Bar Bandicoot Recovery Team is moving the bandicoots down that list from extinct in the wild, back to endangered, and then one day, not endangered anymore, back to threatened, um, back to to least concern if we could possibly do it. And so it really does show that reverse the red focus on moving the species into those safer categories, and not only just focusing on having a safe and healthy species, but also those safe and healthy ecosystems that it helps to protect and so I think it's a really great example of a program that extols those global virtues and can be used as an example of what you can do when you all work together and you do collaborate, you do use that evidence, and you always stay optimistic.
3: Well, I wanted to highlight, you are know, talking about partnerships and, you know, you, you mentioned you have thousands of people involved, and, and you're right, there has been thousands of people involved over the, the three Decades of of eaten by Bandicoot recovery, but one of the most important thing is A a critical partnership has been with community members. So these are people um, on the island so French and Phillip Island who Never thought they'd work with an, an endangered species. It was never You know something they cared about until you know one day we rock up and say hey, we want to release bandicoots here and French Island was the first island where uh, we planned to do that because that was our only fox-free Island in Victoria and it's also the largest island. So it's only got 120 people that live there. There's no council, so um, it's a very close-knit community that is deeply passionate about their island. So when we came along and said, we want to release the Bandicoots that have never been here before, um, there was a resounding no. And it took 12 years to actually go from asking the question to getting them there and we knew back then that it was critically important to get community support because bandicoots would uh, be roaming right across their, their paddocks yeah it would be the private farmland where we'd have bandicoots not in the bush which is yeah, it's really thick dense tea tree not really your typical bandicoot habitat um, but we knew that the farmland with the paddocks and the shelter belts would be ideal so if we didn't get that community support they could very easily you know make sure that the, the program failed and so we went from in 2007 to most people say not not interested but, you know, we slowly worked our way, you know, kept updating the community and what was going on, getting them involved getting finding ways to get them interested, you know, working with the local school and getting them to make, you know, plaster casts of, of bandicoot digs and comparing that with like rabbit digs, which are across the island as well. And, you know, talking about the differences there. The turning point was when yeah, you because know, I realised I've got to connect this community to bandicoots. They have to see a bandicoot, but being on an island where the, the passenger ferry only runs uh, during the day, I can't get them anywhere to see them at night. Otherwise, you know, I've got to book accommodation, and that's just a, another challenge. So what I did, I chartered a boat actually from Phillip Island to where where Duncan lives, and I invited them all out like, for dinner on Churchill Island where we'd l- release bandicoots and and I didn't know if anyone would come, but I booked it for a Saturday night and pretty much the whole island came. And there was a lot of um, talk amongst the islanders, oh, I didn't realise they'd come, I didn't think they'd come. Oh, you know, so there was a lot of surprise You know, Everybody came along because, you know, it's free food, um, but with bandicoots thrown in. And I think that was the moment that it all changed. So when the sun went down, and the bandicoids started to come out and they were just running around in front of people. And the oohs and the ah's and the squeals and the delights. And at the end of the night we asked, you know, what do you what do you think of bandicoids now? And yeah, everyone was like, release them. You know, they'd seen the digs, the size of the digs that they make, they'd seen the animal, and you know, they just loved them. It was just instantly they fell in love. It still took a few years from there to get them onto the island, but now when I go over there and I monitor the population, it's all the islanders come out and they're my volunteers for the night, even though they know they might only get to bed at three, four o'clock in the morning. They come out, they help monitor them. They've got them in their own backyard. They've bought their own camera equipment so they can monitor themselves. Um, it's just such an amazing story. And yeah, everyone just seems, you know, they love the bench. they fall in love with them, and they're, they're making their way across the island and there's people waiting, you know, when are they going to get here? When are they going to get here? Um, so that was just a massive, massive highlight, uh, career highlight for me, um, before the, the big one is the reclassification, but it just goes to show that you know, even though you you may not have have thought you've been involved with uh, endangered species. It's not something that you are interested in. You, know, you can still play a part. Everybody plays a part in, saving species and extinction.
2: I was going to say, too, we, we've talked a little bit about the partnerships that are important in this program, and it really is critical to the success, not just the communities, but the partners that are part of the recovery team and all the way through its evolution as well. The the key thing that needed to happen to get this species that, you know, started from a very small genetic basis. It's quite uh, relatively, it, it's an inbred species. It doesn't have a lot of diversity there. And the key thing we needed to do was, uh, in order to halt the, the further decline of that genetic diversity, was get the numbers up. So we needed lots more bandicoots. We needed quantity of bandicoots to help halt that decline in genetic diversity and that means multiple sites and multiple partners who manage those sites and every single one of those has been critical to the success of this. No one organisation could possibly do what's been done with this recovery team because they don't manage enough sites or enough reserves and have the skill sets that are needed so that partnership has been absolutely critical to the, the outcome that we've been able to see.
4: The biggest thing that you know, I've got all these notes of everything you're saying, and it's the numbers that are sticking out to me. Uh, 13 kilometers of soil a night, uh, 12 and a half days for pregnancy, five liter uh, litters a year, uh, 99.9% of their habitat is gone, 33 years for this conservation program, 1,200 bandicoots, uh, 740 released. I mean, this is remarkable. This is one of the most remarkable conservation stories. And so thinking through this, you know, when you, when you mention seeing a kid see a, pan, a bandicoot for the first time, like out in the wild and how like life-changing that is, you know, this is the thing that Reverse the Red does and it's what Pelicanus, you know, what we're so focused on is really seeing conservation as a human expression. Um, really seeing this as a new thing that humans are doing. Um, I I don't know. I just thought of the, I'm probably butchering the quote, but I think it was Henry Ford, you know, when he was, you know, doing his whole automobile thing, you know, when people were criticizing him and judging him and joking with him, he said, if you had it your way, you, you would have a, you'd, you just make a better horse. And so there's something so special about this is like it's this new way to engage with the natural world and that's one of the big things that I see here. So no, I, I don't I don't have any more big questions. I'm just so re- remarkably impressed by the program that you all have managed. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: And and with those numbers that Taylor just kind of spouted off that, you know, just repeating them again, they're everything is so impressive. I kind of wanted to get everyone, each of your perspective on the idea of hope or optimism, and we call it possibilism. The, this this show is called The Possibilists, where if you get thousands of volunteers and all these partners and, and all these programs, you can actually do these things like recover Eastern Barred Bandicoots. How does that over the last 33 years or however long each of you have been involved, how does that factor into your day-to-day? Because I know how difficult it can be day-to-day. I know how sometimes you have to call IT to get your Chrome to work. Uh, (laughs) um, And so I guess, how does that factor in every day? How does, how does, how do you kind of keep going? Because I know how difficult it can be.
2: I think we're, because we have the possibility of achieving these turnaround stories, we need to inspire ourselves as well as everyone else that is actually possible and when i get up in the morning because i think i can actually make a difference there and i can bring people with me on that journey and i in fact i'd love them to be right beside me and um, leading that charge because it is so inspiring and i think we grow up from a very young age just being totally in awe with nature and everything about it we we want to look in and check out that bug in detail and just feel connected with it as as this kid we kind of lose that as we grow older and some of us we hold on to that and grasp that love of nature and uh and their connection with it and i think that's what we've all been able to to hold on to and want other people to experience what that that joy of being part of nature actually looks like and feels like and it's that that connection to it that is really inspiring so it's living with wildlife and remembering what it is to live with wildlife and the wildlife that we that that native wildlife part of that landscape that really inspires me to to try and do that and now that we're seeing on Phillip Island we've got bandicoots that have established there and are spreading, and they're literally spreading into people's backyards. And I I now have them foraging in in my front yard at home. And I I can't think of too many conservationists who've who've managed to save a species like we have and have them bouncing around in your own front yard. That's pretty or inspiring for me. Uh, So I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. And and others are getting that benefit, too, um, on on the island here, on French Island. And what we hope is that we can take it that next step as well. So go beyond the islands and these fence reserves and find a way to have this species doing its thing across the whole landscape again. And I I believe we can get there. Uh, It won't be tomorrow, but there will be a day that we can do it and that will continue to inspire us to fight for this species and for the range of species that belong on, on this amazing continent.
1: I can only imagine how mind-blowing that is to be working on a species for so many years and then having them in your front yard. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. just so crazy.
0: I think hope is such an important thing for all of us, particularly when you work in conservation. And a lot of that is working with amazing people as well. Uh, When I was three years old, I told my parents I wanted to work in a zoo and make baby animals. And as I grew up, that focus stayed on animals, it turned more to wildlife and it turned to really making a difference. And so working as a reproductive biologist at Zoos Victoria now across four zoos is my dream job. And so I am extremely fortunate and I, I tell myself every day how lucky I am to do something I love really be able to see that difference that we can all make together and at zoos victoria we have what we call a fighting extinction commitment and it's that no victorian bird mammal reptile or frog will ever go extinct on our watch and we can't do it by ourselves we work with amazing partners as we've been talking about here to all come together to give hope to these species and get them safe back out in the wild where they belong and i think the bandicoots are such an amazing story of hope that we can go from extinct in the wild to safe, to being in people's front yards, to living their lives happily and healthily and then continuing that work obviously into the future. But when we get down about bushfires and climate change and the biodiversity crisis, if we can think of those bandicoots and what we've all achieved together, I think that gives us hope and it gives hope to other species as well that we can do this and we can reverse the red and we can fight extinction. And so I think that's what we all need to hold on to, that when we work together, we can do amazing things and even small things when done en masse can make huge differences. So there is always hope for our species and we do need to hold on to that.
3: Yeah, it's been a huge success now, but when I first joined the recovery team, there was probably around 100 instant by banditips left. So that was in 2005 so the program had already been running a couple of decades so it wasn't plain sailing here you know, we had there was early wins before i joined the team and then there was massive failures we learned from those and i think i have one of those don't give up attitudes anything is possible you've just got to find out a way to overcome those challenges and i think we all probably have that kind of attitude that's involved in, in conservation and that's what keeps us going and the small wins are what fuels us as well and inspiring others like I even take my children out into the fields, you know, they've been out, you know, in the middle of the night catching bandicoots with me and and seeing the look and the joy on their face as well and then working with the communities and and seeing them inspired and wanting to help. Uh, it all just Come together and, and fuels me to continue to do this work. And especially, you know, being able to reclassify a species shows it is possible. Yeah, you know, we can do this. And it might not be an overnight success, but if we just keep going and, you know, finding ways to overcome those challenges of which you know they seem like they're never ending, um, you know, we can make a difference. And the the rewards are just massive. You know, we talked earlier about. Um, they keep being a digging mammal and how much soil they turn over in a night and the positive impact they're having on soil health you know there is the a reason that these animals were widespread and why we need them in the ecosystem and it's just um yeah, it's just amazing to be part of this story and and continue to work with threatened species so we can bring others back and and have these successes as well one day
1: um, so where, if anyone around the world, uh, wants to get involved or learn more about bandicoots, um, where can they go either physically or online or on social media? Where can people learn more or get involved with, uh, every, anybody involved with the recovery team?
3: So we have a great website that's hosted by, oh, you have to remind me of the Earl. Um, it's Swift. I'm frantically trying to Google it now. Uh, <laughs> um, so we just spent a lot of time updating that website. So it's Statewide Integrated Flora and Fauna is what SWIFT stands for. Um, so the URL is swift.net.au and there's a great Eastern by Bandicoot page on there with links to all the different sites where we have bandicoots. Um, and all the partners. So that's the the one-stop shop for um, information on Eastern Barred Bandicoots in in Victoria.
2: And as uh, the others have also said, that there have been cast of thousands involved in, as volunteers as part of the program over the years, and we still need those volunteers as part of the program. So there are multiple sites where we're still monitoring and doing research on Eastern Barred Bandicoots uh so there are still opportunities for volunteers to come and give us a a hand with that work and even the communities that uh, now have eastern bard bandicoots uh, running around on in in their front yards as well they can be part of that monitoring program as citizen scientists so they can log a sighting of an eastern bard bandicoot and tell us where they're seeing them Um, that's Uh, been a a fantastic resource to help us map where have they got to now, because we just can't possibly keep up with where they've got to anymore, uh, which is a great problem to have.
1: That's so cool. Yeah, the the citizen science stuff is awesome when it comes to that, especially on such a positive note. Usually it's like, where are you not seeing them anymore?
2: (laughs) That's right. That's right. So uh, particularly for the locals um, or anyone who's visiting to Phillip Island, there's that resource, which can be found on the website for uh, the Phillip Island nature parks. That's penguins.org.au.
0: So if people would like to hear more about our Eastern Barred Bandicoot programs and our other programs at Zoos Victoria, they can visit zoo.org.au. And there are also some great sites there on what people can do in their own lives to help wildlife because there are very small changes we can all make that can make a global difference and so please do check out the website read about the bandicoots and the program but also about the other species we work with and how you can help in your own lives too
1: well thank you guys so much this has been fantastic Uh, we really appreciate you telling your story this is this is an incredible complex and crazy story And it's just, uh, like I said, it's a really hopeful story as well. So appreciate everyone taking the time. Thank you so much. Been a pleasure, Austin. Thank you.
0: It has. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you so
1: much. Thank you again to everyone for talking with us and sharing the amazing story of how they recovered this species. Please check out Zoos Victoria and all the other partner sites to learn more and see how you can help. Hosts and producers are Austin and Taylor Parker. Producers on this episode are Megan Joyce. Photos were provided by Zoos Victoria. Thank you for tuning in. We'll talk to you next time.